Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And today we are joined by two special guests. The first one is one of our Scoobies, who is a reoccurring guest. Now, hi there, this is Anthony Oliveira. And our other guest is a YA author named... Kirsten White. Yay! Um, <laughs> thank you both for being here. Um, thank you for having us. Yeah, super excited. Um, Kirsten, since this is your first episode, we have everyone tell us their Buffy origin and what brought us, what brought them to the show. So let us have it. All right. Um, so Buffy is actually the first show that I remember really being a fan of. Um, my mom got me a shirt with like this little cartoon Buffy that said eat steak and it was great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's so cute. Right. And, uh, it was the, the one show in high school that like I would go home at a certain time to watch and it just felt, uh, what I loved about it is that it took her seriously as a person and not just as a superhero and that the personal drama had as much weight as a supernatural drama. So that really struck a deep chord. Um, and then I kind of lost track of it when I went to college. I was actually not allowed to watch it anymore once Willow became a lesbian. Um, <laughs> oh, I was, we're going to talk I was about raised that. in a very religious household. Um, <laughs> we've since abandoned that. Uh, and so it, I went back to it actually when I had graduated from college and I either had one or two kids at that point. It's all a blur. I'm not really sure. Um, I am sure how many kids I have now most days. Um, and I started rewatching and I actually rented the DVDs from the library. And uh, it just was so powerful and like such great storytelling at a time when I really needed stories because my babies, however many I had at that time, were super hard. That's why I don't remember how many I had. Um <laughs> And I remember convincing my husband to watch it, and he was initially very skeptical, but then he was like, oh, wait, this is amazing storytelling. And I felt very validated by that. (laughs) And um, it's actually right around when I started writing YA, and it was definitely a huge influence on both my voice and the types of things that I wrote, having this sort of archetype Buffy at the forefront of my mind. I I love that apparently in your home, like, having sex with the undead was not the problem, but Will I mean, and Tara just touching hands and falling backward onto a pillow was, like, a bridge too far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were totally cool with vampire sex. Not an issue. Uh, uh, as long as it's straight vampire sex. It's funny, though. My mom didn't get it. Like, my mom is the one that got me into Buffy, but she would always be like, oh, you're reading too much into it. They're not gay. They're just good friends. <laughs> Okay, I was really stupid as a kid, and I didn't realize they were together until embarrassingly deep into this season. Like, I did not, we'll talk about this, but I did not register, even at, like, a basic level, what was happening in this episode the first time. (laughs) Um, And, Kirsten, you are going to be writing a series that takes place, a YA series that takes place in the Buffy canon, correct? I am. Would you like to tell us about it? Yeah, the first book is called Slayer. It comes out probably early 2019. I don't have any control over it, but I'm thinking like January, February-ish, 2019. Um, And it was just a very surreal experience. Um, My agent emailed me and she was like, I've never watched the show, but I think you'd be perfect for this. And the editor was like, I think you'd be perfect for this. And I was like, I know I'd be perfect for this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No modesty there. Uh, Yeah, so it was actually cool. Um, Comic-Con got me the job. Because I was at Comic-Con a few years ago, and I was wearing a Sunnydale High School t-shirt, as one does. 
And I met the editor, um, who's my editor now. And so several years later, when Fox said we want a YA Buffy series, I was the first person that she thought of. And of course, I snatched it up and did not give anybody else a chance to do it because (laughs) I'm selfish. Um, And so it actually takes place after season seven. And they were pretty like open about what I could do with it. They wanted it to be a new Slayer. It didn't necessarily have to be a Slayer that was introduced in season seven. Somebody asked me if it would be about Kennedy and I was like, are you kidding me? No. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Strong Kennedy feelings. Um, And so, yeah, it was just the most surreal experience sitting on my couch and getting to create a new chapter of storytelling in this world that has meant so much to me. So it's been a really, really fun project. I'm super excited because I'm about to start on the sequel. So. Oh, nice. Oh, so the first one's done? Yep, it is done. I'm waiting for oh. copy edits for them to Can tell me. Can you tell us anything? Um, <laughs> I will tell you. Let's see. Um, my very favorite terrible outfit from season one of Buffy makes a cameo that I'm really hoping somebody picks up on. Oh, my God. And um, it, was, it was very tricky setting it in the world without messing up the continuity of the graphic novels that take place after the, the seventh season run of the TV show. Um, But I really had fun with dream sequences, which, you know, they're in Hush. They're a big thing in Buffy. So through dream sequences, I was able to pull in a lot of cameos that I'm very excited about, including a certain brunette favorite of mine. I'm so jealous. That's such an amazing project. Congratulations (laughs) to you. I I remember when Entertainment Weekly announced it as like part of like the 20th anniversary. Like I remember, it's funny that like we know each other now because I remember posting on Facebook, I am so jealous I wasn't, I didn't get the job to write this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I know. I I didn't give anybody else a shot. I like called the editor within five minutes and was like, it's mine. Don't give it to anybody else. But that's crazy. It's yeah. very like um, Devil Wears Prada, where they call it the job that a million girls would want. That's <laughs> yeah. you writing the Buffy novel. <laughs> yep, yeah. A million girls and gay men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny because I don't know if you like Jana Spenson was on for Pangs, and she yeah. told us the way she got the job was that she liked Buffy and kept sending Joss spec scripts, and then got hired. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of just being open about your fandoms um, online. Like, I got this job because I was wearing a Buffy shirt. Yeah, It's why about every two weeks I say, hey, if anybody wants a Jessica Jones novel, you should hire me. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, but I'm still hoping. Um, yeah, just because when these things come up, typically editors uh, will go with somebody that they know is a fan. And so that's, that's why I got it. So right. you yeah. can't manufacture that energy, right? Like you really can't. Yeah. I too have been shamelessly plugging myself for jobs with some success that I still can't talk about, but <laughs> I, I would a hundred percent back that up. Like yeah. just talk about what you love and don't be afraid to talk about what you love because people are listening and they're listening at surprising moments. Yeah, for sure. I still have not been hired to write a book about Killian Murphy's face, but I might at some point. Keep reaching for that rainbow, girl. That sounds like a good gig. The angles. (laughs) The non-Euclidean angles of Killian Murphy's beautiful face. (laughs) So today we are here to discuss my all-time favorite episode of Buffy, Hush. Yay! Yay! Um, Yay. I, I, I want you all to know, I took like a crazy amount of notes. I went back and rewatched. I watched the episode like three times this week. I watched the entertainment weekly, their reunion video. They have like a specific clip where they discuss hush. And then I reread TV guides, oral history of hush, um, which features Amber Benson, Anthony Stewart head, 
Doug Jones, who's the like head gentleman, and Christoph Beck, who's the composer. Um, so I have like a shit ton of notes, and then also in the notes because I go in order. I also have like, oh well, this person said this in this interview. So um, I'm going to keep up with you this time, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I did not I know that it now. was Doug Jones, though. That kind of blows my mind. Isn't that amazing? Once you know, once, like once you recognize the hand gestures, yeah, of it's, course, like, it's unmistakable. Doug yeah. Wow. I um I live in Toronto and I swear I'm pretty sure I saw and like they filmed Star Trek. He plays Commander Commander Saru on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they film um, that here and they film um all of Del Toro's movies here. And I think I'm pretty sure I saw him on the subway because it was this elegant like seven foot man handling an iPad in the most beautiful way I've ever seen an iPad handled. <laughs> <laughs> Also, the fish man in Shape of Water, yes, which is now the subject of a dildo that I wrote about. (laughs) (laughs) On Etsy, they're now selling fish man shaped dildos. I saw that. I too saw that. (laughs) I too have seen the dildo. I was just watching an interview with him where apparently he has to wear a fake butt in everything he does, like the beautiful fish man's butt in. in Shape of Water is all padding because he has no butt and one of his It was a very beautiful butt. Like, they really worked hard to make that fish man really sexy. Yeah. (laughs) But his his choice for Commander Saru on Star Trek was no butt padding this time. He wanted the alienness of his lack of butt. Hmm. This has already become quite digressive. (laughs) (laughs) Is this in your notes, Ian? (laughs) On Tumblr, that was, um, there was like a thread about the Janus Benson episode and it was like, Normally, they get completely sidetracked, but in this episode, they actually don't. So we're already off to a great start. What are your Um, notes, Ian? Keep us on task. Well, you know, in the name of being on task, we do do start with, and Kirsten was just talking about them, with her series, we we start with the dream sequence, which is kind of a classic Buffy opening, and when you start with a dream sequence, you kind of know that you're in for a really good episode of Buffy because they really not at this point in the series only bring them out for like a big episode kind of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, is so, this the first mislead? Are they usually misleading that they're dreams? I'm trying to remember. They're they're This one is more like, I mean, you, you kind of know when Riley is about to lean in and kiss her, but in the very beginning you think it's just a regular thing of Buffy in class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple, yeah, there's a couple of dreams that are misleading, right? Like, there's a couple times they do that? Yeah. 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 Um, well, there's, they also do it that one time where, um, when Buffy, when, like, Giles chokes Buffy, like, you think it's just a regular thing oh. for Giles, and then it, it's really the master right. dressed up as Giles and starts choking her. Right. Which I recently learned is David Boreanaz in Master Makeup. Oh. Yeah. Wow. That's neat. They it's, like, layers on layers. Yeah, they didn't want to rehire <laughs> Mark Metcalf to... You know, come back for a non-speaking realm. Anyway, Aww. so this episode, I think, I mean, I'm going to be that annoying person that's like, and I love this part, and I love this part, and I love this part, <laughs> because I really love everything about the episode, but I think the opening is a really good way to open the episode, her being like, this is what it is, and just like opening, and like you're in an auditorium, and so it's already bigger, and also, fun fact, Andy Hallett, who played Lorne, is one of the students sitting behind Buffy, which I really Aww. like. Um, R.I.P. I love him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also like it lets you have someone just say what the theme of the episode yes. is, right? Like, yeah. it's just the same with that episode where the, the teacher keeps talking about Othello and Iago, and it's yeah. like, okay, we yeah. get it. Like, <laughs> the same thing is happening here again. She says, well, that, uh, "I'm sure." Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
like I don't I'm sure Ian has it written down like uh, language versus communication not the same thing is like yeah. the mm-hmm. thing she says um, so the episode is very like here's what we're going to talk about for 50 minutes um, mm-hmm. <laughs> or not talk about <laughs> right. oh. we should get meta and just have a silent podcast in a lot of ways they're pulling out a lot of these classic Buffy tricks with the dream and with the um the teacher talking about the lesson of the episode and these are like as a viewer I think these are like things that we're trained to see from the beginning of a Buffy episode and I actually don't think that they were they're not used as often in season four and season four can feel so disorienting after Mm -hmm. the high school years that it's actually really comforting as a viewer too to like see the episode start that way so it almost feels like you're wearing this like security blanket or something and you're also but then it's interesting because you're going to be jolted later by what is like the most frightening episode of Buffy in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways you know yeah Uh, yeah and it's also um yeah I think that's very true like the the gentlemen don't feel like season four monsters because season yeah. four is so interested in the mundanity of monsters. Like it's so interested in the initiatives project of making them just animals of sort of like really leaning on that Lovecraft idea that they're just creatures that are older than us. And the gentlemen, partly just by the structure of the episode, we don't get a lot of exposition about like even at a basic level, what they are. We never find out what they're doing with these hearts really. Um, I was trying to like do a head count. It's not even clear how many gentlemen there are. There's, I, I managed to find one shot where there's six in the same shot. So there's at least yes. six, but I don't know if there's more. <laughs> Usually, yeah, there's like somewhere between five and seven. And the, the easiest one is like the Doug Jones one to pick out. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. rest are definitely like a foot shorter than him. Yeah, and the Camden <laughs> toy one is easy to clock too. The guy who ends up playing, what's his name? The Gnarl. Gollum monster in season, yeah, Gnarl in season seven. Um. Uh, yeah, so from that, in the TV Guide's oral history of Hush, um, Doug Jones actually says that him and Camden Toy, they're the only ones with their real mouths showing. Like, they're wearing fake oh, yeah. <laughs> And the rest of them, their mouths are part of their costumes. And mm-hmm. Joss Whedon was actually the one, like, Doug Jones mentioned it to him. Um, and, Doug Jones, and Joss Whedon asked them to remove... Uh, Camden Toy and Doug Jones's fake mouths, so they could use the real mouths. Oh, yeah. Which, if, um, like, when you're watching the episode, it's really is—is is that what I'm seeing? I've never really watched it on a big screen. And today, when I was watching it, I was like, "Are those teeth like really black, or are they metal?" They look metallic. They look metal. Yeah, they look. Yeah, yeah. they look metallic. And um, there's so the there's... one that has like a huge grin, like yeah. the kind of stockier guy. Yeah, that's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I wanted to note about the dream, too, that I wrote down is that it might be, it's the first time I remember a Buffy dream that is a mix of both personal and professional, because, like, she's supposed to have prophetic dreams about her work, but it's also a dream about Riley, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of, like, the first time that I remember her having a dream that is, like, both romantic and about her business. That's true. Right. Uh, What does he say? Uh, When I kiss you, the sun Sun goes down? down. The sun will go down. And then you have the very, and I wrote down, uh, you have the song, which kind of reminds me of Nightmare on Elm yes. Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's what is, very How nice. does the Nightmare on Elm Street song go? Because every time I try to remember it, I only remember the button one. One, two, one. Freddy's coming for you. Oh, yes. Four, better lock the door. Five, six, get the crucifix. Seven, eight, gotta stay up late. Nine, ten, he's back again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, she knows. <laughs> so, so what information have you dropped from your brain in order to hold on to that? Is my question. <laughs> Honestly, I'm impressed. I- 
I, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Any of, I don't I know any of my passwords to anything. <laughs> that is your password to everything. My um, whole thing typed out. And the other thing, the other reason they don't feel like season four monsters is that right? Because they're activating. They very quickly activate like the the classic horror tropes, right? Yes. Like mm-hmm. Freddy gets activated. The weird box has this kind of Hellraiser quality to it. Yeah. Um, the way their heads explode later is very like scanners and like gremlins. Like we know what they are because we know what they're being instantly compared to, you know, mm-hmm. like we never find out actually what their deal is, but we don't need to because like they're so evocative of so many different, like they're doing this like weird Victorian vampire thing with their like coats and like the Renfield guys like wander yeah, around. Yeah, like I-, I never forget what the deal with them is like, why are they in broken straight jackets? Did the gentleman straight jacket them? Yeah. Were they in some institution? Well, like, yeah, you know, I always felt like they were actually kind of just as scary, if not scarier than gentlemen, because they kind of felt like they were the, um, well, they were like their henchmen. And so mm-hmm. the gentlemen felt like they were like the mafiosos and yeah. those were like fronts. <laughs> and those are the ones that like you really had to watch because they felt very strong. Whereas the gentlemen, and I don't know if we want to talk about this now, or if we want to talk about it later, to read as queer. Like they just feel very queer the whole time. And like they're very delicate and like femme in the way they move. As opposed and to like so very, polite. Yeah, I know as opposed <laughs> so to the polite. very rough and tumble uh henchmen, like the grunts. I did okay. Okay, wait, no. I'm gonna keep us on topic. We're not talking about okay. that yet. Because <laughs> okay. we have okay, we have to talk about it. I promise we're gonna talk about it. Though. I promise we'll talk about it because <laughs> okay. in the scene when he puts his hands out and he looks like he's saying, Oh no, thank you. Don't don't even try. That it is very like fop foppish villain. <laughs> but we will talk about that when we get to that scene. So Professor Walsh gives the speech of this is what it is, which is I think is so perfect because she's literally saying this is what the episode is. Um, and I think Riley touching Buffy's shoulder and then her seeing him as a gentleman is one of the very few like actual jump scares we ever get on the show. Mm. Um, like I remember the first time I saw that, like it actually, you know, it's not like scary, scary, but it was still like, oh. Um, mm-hmm. And the show doesn't, often, like, I don't think they even try to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's something Joss was ever aiming for, but in this episode, it it totally works. I think um, there's even a better jump scare later when Olivia's yes. looking out the window. Oh, yeah. I was gonna <laughs> yeah. get to I that. I was gonna say, you must not be very susceptible to jump scares, because, like, a phone rings in a scene, and I jump scare. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh... um, I also wanted to note that in the EW, the Entertainment Weekly reunion, Amber Benson said that she felt bad because no one wanted to sit with the actors dressed as a gentleman for lunch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so that will lead us into Willa's Wicker group, um, which I really love the scene. And I almost wish we could have mm-hmm. gotten more of that Wicker group throughout the show. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't come back till season seven, I think. Um, but more importantly, we get Tara. And we finally have reached a point in the show where we can talk about Tara in the context of the episode we're discussing. (laughs) Um, How do you all feel about Tara's introduction? I thought it was great. I mean, but we also are watching it in this episode knowing what she comes to mean later. Yes. Um, Right. But... But I love her. And I, she's such a contrast to the other characters because she's so soft and yes. so mm-hmm. so unassuming and kind. And, you know, Willow kind of had that in the beginning, but she's transitioned out of that. And so I like that we reintroduce this character who who is aware she's not um, she's not naive, but she's yeah. she's not rough and tumble. 
And she almost feels like, not even just not naive, but she feels like more aware of the outside. Yeah. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like Willow's studying magic and is a powerful witch, but she doesn't even see herself as that. But Tara's the first one to be like, no, you are. Like, yeah. Tara, and Tara's the only other person in the Wicker group that's like, actually is like, yes, witchcraft. Like, this is a real mm-hmm. thing in this world. Um, and I, I just also, think. What? But she's also. I like, they're just speaking to that sort of softness. She, what I love about Tara as a character on this show is that she lives in this world of like ludicrously. We've talked before when I've been on about the sort of like overwroughtness of Buffy's language, like the way that, especially in this episode, like an episode about silence, one of the reasons he even did it is because he wanted to show he wasn't just like a dialogue guy. And what I love about Tara is that she's not funny. (laughs) Like that's an important character beat. Like even in this episode, in the last scene where she's like, I think if they saw a witch, they'd run the other way. Like, it's like sort of spectacular, there's something pathetic about that. Like she doesn't <laughs> land a joke and she's sort of delighted mm-hmm. by her own inability to land the joke. And it's like a good through line through her character. Like even in that episode, eventually, um, what's it called? Family? Yeah. yeah. Where she comes yeah. out. She tells she's like that. spends the whole episode trying to explain her joke to people. And even when people get it, they're like, I get yes. it, but it's not funny. Yeah, at the end, Anya's like, no, I get it, it's not funny. <laughs> yeah, and I like that. Like I like in a world full of these very verbal characters, she's sort of, Especially, I like that this is her in- entrance here. Like, we meet her in a moment where she's unable to speak, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. before, the, before the episode even, the magic of the episode kicks in, we have had Maggie Walsh say, like, this is going to be that communication. And then we have this moment, this sort of, like, if you're like me in high school, you know this feeling very well of, like, the horrible moment where a whole room is silenced so that you can say something. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. They're like, Tara, did you have something you needed to say? And she doesn't have, she's like, her stammer is here for the first time. And, and it um, works, it works really well as like, you know, they're not quite bullying her, but like they kind of are, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah, like clearly yeah. she's doing it on purpose to be a dick to Tara, <laughs> but is still being like, what do you have to say? And giving her a chance to say something. But, like, knowing that Tara's going to be, like, eh, about it. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think one of the things that I like that you pointed out, Anthony, was that, like, I think the 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 text of the episode has to do mostly with the Buffy-Riley plot, and not enough people realize, too, that, like, the communication breakdown thing really does extend to the Willow-Tara plotline, too, and how, like, they recognize something in each other and, like, don't yet have the kind of language to talk about it. Um, and like, that's like that journey that's happening in this episode. I think it's interesting. Also, Kirsten, you brought up, like, we know, we know and love Tara because of her entire arc. And like, what is it like to look at her in this episode? And so I really tried to look at her without thinking about like everything I know about her as my favorite character, (laughs) because I think there's still, I mean, obviously just like with any TV show, the first time you introduce a character, they're still figuring her out. And like Mm -hmm. her mousiness factor is at 10. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Right. (laughs) Dial that back. But I just like, I really want to know like what the notes were for her as an actor because she's like giving you like full on like Amy the Rat mousiness. Like, <laughs> it's really, it's almost a little, a little distracting, but it's so, but there is a genuineness about her. And I also wanted to bring up that I think that, and I've, we said this before about Xander and how like Xander is the everyman who almost feels like a proxy for us. But the more and more I think about it, especially with what you were saying, Anthony, I feel like Tara might be that character too, because like she's an outsider who's just genuinely nice and cares about everyone in the group. 
but mm-hmm. and we're kind of like that outsider who's watching everything happen. It's harder to say that Tara's every woman because she is a powerful witch, but she is like the grounding aspect to the group in a lot of ways and feels mm-hmm. like the most realistic. And that is also her name. Like Joss said that he named her after like Tara for Earth because she's the grounding aspect. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's... Do you guys want to hear an Amber Benson story? Always. Yes. She's lovely. Oh my God, Kirsten. Um, yes, I was going to say the same thing because I interviewed her when I interned at BuzzFeed and right, she is like... She's just the loveliest. I was on angel. a I was on a panel with her at Comic-Con and she was there. She's an author. She writes urban fantasy that's super fun and she was hilarious and she was so delightful and you know, you try to be really respective of boundaries. She was there as an author, not as an actress, but yeah. I was sitting next to her in the signing line and the people that came through and talked to her, like she changed their lives <laughs> and she was just so gracious and so warm and I was just, I've always been really impressed with her and um, I might have bribed a friend coming through the line to ask if she could get a picture of us together because I wanted a picture with Amber, but I didn't want to be the person who was like, can I take a picture with you when we were both there as authors? So I I, creep, but Amber is wonderful. I love that. Yeah. um, So I'll tell my Amber story. When we, I interviewed her when I interned at BuzzFeed and it was the first interview I literally ever did. Um, and I was so nervous just because it's oh, like, no. oh, this is a person from my favorite show. And the yeah. recorder I had borrowed from work didn't work. So I'm like sweating and drenched in sweat. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Let me hold on. I can do it on my phone. And she's like, you're doing fine, sweetheart. Like, you're doing great. And she's really encouraging, really nice. And then she invited me out for drinks with everyone afterwards, after that first day at Comic-Con. And I was like thrilled. And I was like, before we head out, can I buy you a shot? And she was like, yeah, sure. And as we're waiting for her, and she had never didn't even know what Fireball was, she was just like, sure, I'll do whatever you want. Um, I'm like, can I gush for like two seconds? And she was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you played Tara so well and everything you did meant so much to me as a, like, a young gay kid. And like my mom watched the show and it made it so, so much easier to come out. And she just gave me a big hug and was like, thanks. And I'm like, I know she's heard this five fucking million times, but she's still even like out at a social thing was like, oh, thanks. And like gave me a hug. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I'm sure it's she's never terrible to hear that you've changed somebody's life. <laughs> like, I'm sure That's she's true. not. <laughs> I wouldn't get sick of that. <laughs> um, but she's very good at communicating. I think that's part of why the character works so well off the top here is, like, she's communicating that more. Like, even her last line, um, I've already said, like, I did not understand the final exchange. Like, where Willow's like, oh, I'm nothing special. And she says, no, but you are. Like, there's a way to misread that line as an actor that makes her come off, like, stalkery or, like, yeah. as weird. And it's just, like, she just radiates warmth from it. And that's kind mm-hmm. of, like, this maybe goes to uh, Matthew's point. Like, she comes to this universe, even though she weirdly knows a lot about, like, the occult as a character, we experience her kind of, like, fangirling out around them in a weird way that I that mm-hmm. I found, like, relatable. Like, that's how I would be if I was suddenly in this universe, you know? Like... <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it's funny that, so we're talking about how warm she is. Her quote from the TV Guide's oral history of Hush about getting the role was, once I booked it, it was like, oh, by the way, half of this is totally silent. It was awesome because I'm not the kind of actor who goes, oh, I have so many lines. Awesome. I'm the actor that goes, oh, I have the least amount of stuff to do. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was like a really like charming quote. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh-huh. Anthony, she does a good job. Like one of the reasons it's so effective as an episode is that the, again, like 
knowing her now, we're like, okay, well, that's Tara. She'll be fine. But there's no reason for us to believe she couldn't be dead by the end yes. of the episode, right? I, yeah, like, just the, the token new character to get right. killed. To get yeah. killed. Yeah, yeah, I feel like if comes off, which Buffy doesn't do as often, but it's very Doctor Who where, like, hey, you're supposed to care about this character. Oh, they're dead in 40 minutes. Like, that's what uh-huh. she feels like is an introduction, and then she's so much more, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, So then we get to Buffy's Buffy and Willow discussing Wicker Group and discussing Riley, and I do really like Buffy's Babble Fest line because it feels <laughs> very Whedon. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Like so her. does Wanna Blessed Be, which is one oh, of my I have favorites. Wanna Blessed Be written down. It's <laughs> yes, that is one of the best Whedonisms ever. <laughs> is, yeah. And again, like very verbal characters who are going to have this like facility shut off in a minute, right? Like he, yeah. he's like he's <laughs> dropping pyrotechnics so that you feel it even more when they can't speak. <laughs> that's really uh, that's a really good remark, Anthony. Um, <laughs> now I'll be silent for fourteen and a half minutes. <laughs> Um, so then we also get Forrest and Riley. Now, I know that Matthew... So Matthew, Kirsten, Matthew is a Riley fan. No, what? Oh. Yeah. Anthony, oh. you didn't know that either? I don't, I, I, I don't think... What is the, what is the vector by which you're a Riley fan? I feel like I have to explain it every episode, and the only reason I I have to explain this every episode only because it makes a big deal out of it every episode. And so I'm making an edict here on episode episode 10 that I'm not explaining my writing. <laughs> I'm going to tell people to reference episodes 1 through 10 now. I mean, come on. He has a poster on his door and it's balls. And it's not even ironic. It's just balls. It's really not. It's really the stupidest poster. No, I just think that... I just think that I, my my main point has always been there's two there's two main points or three or four the, the <laughs> idea is that no one should end up with their high school crush Spike is a sexual assaulter so Riley is just like the leftover and he makes sense and I think she should be with someone not super and um, or doesn't have like a a shit ton of power mm-hmm. and. Um, there was one other thing. Oh, I just don't think that the point of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is who she's with anyway. So I think the yeah. conver- the question or the conversation is kind of silly too. So it's kind of like, why not just have her be with some lame-o? Like, it's like <laughs> so irrelevant. And Riley is the least drama of like Spike the sexual assaulter and, uh-huh. and Angel the brooder. I mean, I'm 100% like I ship Buffy a long-term happiness, which mm-hmm. is right. none of her love interests. Um, but... Oh, no. wait. Okay, so like, who would you who sh- who would be who would you design as an author? Who would you design to be like Buffy's OTP? Like <laughs> honestly, I want Buffy to have like an income. Oh, yes. And um, <laughs> like that's my. I want Buffy. I want Buffy to be married to her work and then have a rotating rogues gallery of people who like satisfy her bodily needs and emotional mm. needs. Yeah, right? Like, she's a non-monogamous badass. <laughs> I would add that I want them, I want the dudes to, like, just be, like, her polyamorous, like, house husbands. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I, like, I honestly think that's the end point for Buffy, is, like, living in a house with eight men who just worship her strength. <laughs> uh-huh. I think that Riley is designed to sort of tell an interesting kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he's sort of there to, like, think about what it would mean to be a good ally to a woman like Buffy. Like he's sort of unlearning a lot of like 
he's unlearning like his like chivalry. Mm-hmm. He's unlearning sort of the like yeah. fratriarchy that he's growing, like the sort of toxic masculinity that Forrest is sort of designed to represent, uh-huh. and that Adam sort of make, makes manifest later on in the season. Uh, I'm sorry if that's a spoiler for your audience. <laughs> um, so I think we, when we meet him, he sort of has like he's given these sort of charming like southern-ish, not southern. What is he? Midwestern-ish qualities Iowa, yeah. mm-hmm. that yeah. we have to like have. We have to watch him outgrow, and that can make him seem very corny at first. Um, and See, after I don't mind him at first, it's it, it's spoilers. It's the later well, on stuff where I'm like, I, yes. I think it's also it's also an opportunity to show a different side of Buffy because yes. she, like with Riley is the only time that we kind of see her getting to be an 18 year old girl who's like mm-hmm. falling for her college boyfriend. Like everything else is so dramatic and is like, Oh my God, is my boyfriend going to slit my throat in the middle of the night? Like, <laughs> or we can we've all just, been like, there. have her go on a coffee date. Like it doesn't <laughs> always have to be on 10. Like, right. That's okay. You so, know? so getting back to, so I think, this is the only time I will say this about because I love this episode. I've already said this a thousand times. Um, I think all the initiative stuff like really is the weakest link in this episode. Um, mm-hmm. Like Forrest, that actor isn't the best. Um, and like when him and Riley are walking through, I almost feel like I'm like, all right, come on, get through this. Like mm-hmm. that all feels like it's a lot of like expo- exposition that we don't particularly need right. yeah um, yeah for sure and like later when they're getting their instructions when the voices yeah. are all out we don't need that yeah you know like it kind of contrasts how giles is doing it but it, it's unnecessary yeah. Yeah. yeah i wonder how much of that is because the episode is so much designed to be a mini movie that like like yeah. even if you've only seen one episode of buffy this is maybe the one you've seen or the musical and it's like they need to sell what he is for a person who has no idea what the show is so that the that's reveal true. matters. It does make um, it very self-contained. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, that's no. true. Yeah. Yeah. Part um, of it is that I don't know if Forrest, I don't know if I'd go so far. I mean, he's not, he doesn't make some interesting choices he could make. Like if it were me and I had like Forrest in front of me as an actor, I'd be like, okay, well, the first thing is that I'm in love with Riley, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's, because that's kind of the beat that that's the arc of his character. Like whether or not it's a romantic love, he yes. he loves Riley in this sort of like frat bro way, and mm-hmm. Buffy is like this dangerous. Like there's a misogynist energy that's like she will bring down this structure. That there's some like yeah. a neocon narrative to the initiative where it's like yeah. I kind of like the moment. The one thing I do like about the initiative scene is that Maggie Walsh speaks, and she speaks with a male computer's voice, right? Yeah. Like she's sort of got this like. There is something patriarchal about Maggie Walsh, even when mm-hmm. she has no voice. I like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like the the forest stuff is kind of doing that, but he doesn't he doesn't play it as much as he could. Well, I, I think the interesting thing about the conversation too is that like Forrest is in this conversation trying to work with Riley to get him into a relationship with Buffy, right? Like he is saying basically like the reason that you two aren't progressing is because you are not coming out to each other as what you are, as what you truly are. And he's saying that without knowing who Buffy is, but it really is this comment on how fragile his masculinity is because he is actually gung ho. He wants Riley to pursue Buffy, but when he finds out that Buffy's powerful, he can't take it. He thinks he's actually egging his friend on to like dominate this little blonde girl. Exactly. Matchless. I think is the word he uses. He's not a fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
he calls her mattressable in a previous episode, right? Like, yeah. and like the subtext <laughs> of that scene in this one is like, she'll never know you the way I know you, right? Like, yeah. 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 Never even thought about that. Okay, so. <laughs> Sorry, can I talk about one thing, even though I, I do like, I do like the Riley thing. I do see the reasons to like him as a character. But one thing that has always weirded me out about this relationship and has only actually weirded me out more as I've worked in academia is that he's her TA. Yeah. And I don't really understand what their relationship is. Like when it, one of the things I've never clocked until this rewatch is that Maggie Walsh's course ends for Buffy in this episode. So in a weird way, like the episode seems to be saying that now they can start hooking up. I don't feel great about it, no matter what. <laughs> but like they are preparing for the final, which I'd never clocked before until this episode. Yeah. They're like walking out the door and the course is over. Now I still don't oh. feel great about it, but it's like I've never I don't really understand like is he a PhD candidate or is he just like a another student? Like I'm not American, so I don't know how universities work down there. Like, is it possible it's also? No, an I've been thinking yeah. about that too because it, I like it, it would help to kind of find out what age he is because <laughs> to be a TA like that, I don't even think you can be an undergrad. I think you'd have to at least be an MA candidate, which would make him. No, a- not not the university that I went to. They oh, really? we had we had TAs and we actually had student instructors that were undergrad. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. Yeah. I never have had that. Like when I went to mm-hmm. Fordham didn't have TAs at all, so we never had a TA, period. So he might just be like a, a psychology major who is also yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, Kirsten, it's actually interesting that you said that because we've discussed this before <laughs> and I couldn't remember. I went to Rutgers undergrad. I like I have the worst memory in the world, unless it's related to like Buffy or X-Men or like my childhood <laughs> pug. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> And I couldn't remember. I, I also was... had a childhood pug, by oh, the way. Really? Oh. There's nothing better than a childhood pug. Right? I know. They're so yeah. cute. Um, I would always say those are my three <laughs> favorite things, Buffy, X-Men, and pugs. Um, yep, yep. But uh, I couldn't, and I kept thinking, I was like, no, I'm pretty sure at Rutgers we had TAs that were just, like, people the professor liked that were, like, picked as TAs that were the yeah. same as, same level as us. But I didn't, like, actually say that because I wasn't sure, and I couldn't remember if that was a thing. But, yeah, okay. Yeah. I think it's definitely different because I mean I mean I went to private school and she's at like a big state school. Yeah. Right. So like at like know, a satellite yeah. campus of a big state school, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they need like TAs because the classes are so big. Yeah. And would it be normal if you heard your your classmate was dating your TA, would you be like, that's normal? Like I'm just not clear. No, that's fucked up. It's a fuck I mean, okay. even if, I mean Everyone has sex with everyone in college, but it's also <laughs> it's a fucked up power structure that he's taking advantage of, and I don't right. think, and that's what I think is like the the, the problem from a writing perspective is just like why are you allowing this to happen? Like Buffy's eighteen, and but I think maybe that's why the show tries to say like tries to wash its hands clean of the problem by saying they don't really start dating dating or like mm-hmm. getting intimate until after the the class is over. Right. That's yeah. yeah. So they so. <laughs> but ostensibly, he's grading Buffy's papers. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that becomes what, that's one of the themes of their relationship, right? Is like, she, he's ostensibly, he, in his mind, he's the one who's supposed to be the alpha. And yet mm-hmm. she keeps like outdoing him and keeps like, he is myth taken, right? That's what she says <laughs> later, right? Like, um, so I guess, I mean, in a weird, I, like, it feels like everything about it is trying to suppress this, but it also speaks to like a theme of season four. 
anyway, well, sorry, even, I just wanted to hear an American's opinion about this. Yeah, but they even bring it up when they when he leans into kids and then she's like, wait, what grading? What papers? Yeah. Oof, and there's yeah, that weird, right. like, oh, this is a weird dynamic. Like, yeah. 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 So even even and even in its own way, the Buffy relationship, the Buffy Riley relationship, is not free of its own weird power thing. The same mm-hmm. way that Angel and Spike are more soaked in it. Um, so maybe that's my thing. Is that right? I mean, but Riley's is still creepy from a non supernatural perspective. It's a little creepy in the beginning. So, <laughs> okay. So we get the gentlemen. Then they steal every, right after that is when they kind of steal everyone's voice. Um, right. I wanted to point out that I read that this was on just like some random Buffy wiki that the houses that are used, because they use like random houses, like when they're going down the street um, and when they show pans of streets, um, those are the houses from Desperate Housewives. Oh, that is so weird. I was going to say it sounds, it looks like just like Wisteria Lane. Oh, really? You were, I was going to say, I never watched the show, so I didn't know. <laughs> I, I, I made a note that it looks like Wisteria Lane because I've been doing, I just did a, re, a rewatch of all of Desperate Housewives. <laughs> That's so funny, Matthew. Um, yeah. And then I, wanted, I see. I would like to watch that crossover episode. Right. I would totally. Desperate watch Housewives it. and the Gentlemen. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Marsha Cross should be in the Buffyverse. <laughs> she belongs yeah. there. Um, so I also wanted you all to know that. So we get the scene of them stealing the voices. Every Buffy and Willow. Buffy wakes up. We follow Buffy. We don't know any. We don't know what's happened until she comes into the room to say good morning to Willow. And the mm, caption, because right. I wa- I always watch it with the captions on because I make gifs <laughs> and screenshots. The caption for when she says good morning to Willow just says vocal silence at this point. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I work on the same thing because I also watch with captions. Oh my God. That was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> right? Isn't yeah. that like, I was like, oh, I was wondering what they were going to say. And then yeah. they do address and it. it- it proceeds not to caption it as they speak throughout the like yep. the rest of the fourteen minutes. It'll oh, say awesome. like, right, Kirsten. Does it? It'll say like some things that they're doing. It'll I, say like chains jangling in the background. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, it doesn't. It it will only give like um, auditory cues, yeah. but no, yeah, no dialogue. Um, and I thought it was important to mention that in the Entertainment Weekly reunion. Sam Rochelle Geller, Allison Hannigan, and James Marsder all said that they thought it was going to be really easy to do this episode, but then it ended up being one of the hardest episodes they had to do because Joss was so particular about how the scenes were portrayed without them mm-hmm. talking, which is what I would imagine, yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, with the music, once the music starts, I think the music for this episode is fucking perfect. Yeah. Um, Xander jumping up and like freaking out is such a good scene and then him like <laughs> yes. looking at Spike and blaming Spike and Spike giving the two-fingered middle finger that's uh-huh. the UK thing um, and I know I just liked it, like 10 of these in a row but also from the TV Guide Oral History Christoph Beck was a composer for this who's done like a million movies um, mm. and he said that it was like five days and nights He this is the exact quote it was five days and nights it was a lot of sleep deprivation to get this done even though it was physically and technically a little torturous, torturous, I was into it from the beginning to the end. There was also the feeling that among the crew, especially the post-production crew, that we were making something really special here, which I thought was like, I don't know. I, I agree with him that they were, but I like that yeah. even he knew that. And it's also insane that he made all the music for this in five days because it's all so, Jeez. feels so extra, right? Yeah. This is the first time we hear the Buffy Riley theme, right? 
think so. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm I so proud of myself. I don't think I could even recognize the Buffy Riley. <laughs> how deeply I suppress it. <laughs> well, I think I was reading an interview with Beck where he said that um, he really liked it in this episode, but he discovered after using it in this episode that it was too big to fit in other episodes. Like it was too. It sounded too melodramatic. It's the mm -hmm. theme that plays when they kiss. So it actually doesn't appear that often. Um, whereas the like, if you heard the Buffy Angel theme, you're like, oh, that's oh, Buffy that's and Angel. So yeah, they used to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's like very quiet and like melancholy. Whereas the Buffy Riley is like this huge swell that just like never play. It doesn't play that often. Mm. Um, um, one thing that I wanted to bring up too is that this is the first. This is one of my big kind of top level notes, and I think it's a good time to talk about it. Is that this is kind of the first in what I would call. Buffy's trilogy of sound in that this episode is where the music tells the entire story and then in season five the body is all talking no music mm -hmm. and season six is a musical where they combine the two with singing which and are the three best episodes of the entire series I feel like and they're also they're all all three of the episodes are kind of loosely with maybe not the body but and but yes the body are all about <laughs> communication yeah. and what you can and cannot say and how do you formulate words to mm -hmm. deal with tough situations because in musicals like the whole point of a song is that you have too much emotion to just say it that you have to sing it and in this one it's about like you have so much to say to someone and now you can't say it because your voice has been taken away and in the body, you kind of have people grappling with like, well, how do I talk about grief? So it's a really interesting kind of trilogy that Joss makes out of like really stretching the bounds of TV and how you use sound, dialogue, audio, music, all those things in like a television episode. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that that's, uh, I think one of the weird things about that as a theme here is that the problem isn't that like language gets taken away and then they have trouble communicating. The problem is that they were really bad at communicating when they could talk, right? Like, mm -hmm. like <laughs> Buffy and Riley are lying to each other at the beginning. Um, right. uh, Xander and Anya are fighting. Well, what is our relationship? And they can't determine what it is. Um, Olivia and Giles have not spelled, like, she walks in the room and is like, that's enough small talk, right? And, like, <laughs> it's only by the end of the episode that they realize, oh, this actually won't work. Like, it's only the silence that puts everybody in a position where they can actually, like, come out to each other in, uh, on a few levels, right? Like, Well, and Tara's, Tara's too shy to have a conversation with Willow. Right, yeah, it's only yeah. in silence she can introduce herself, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and Anya feels like Xander isn't, like, expressing his love to her. And then we kind of come to see that they express it through action, like his mm -hmm. action of <laughs> her. Punching Spike, yeah. Oh, so, no. so we skipped no. over that. I can't believe we skipped over that scene. Um, or well, we I, didn't skip it yet. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> no, because I, I already said that when... Um, I skipped over the orgasm friend scene. Yeah. Um, that orgasm friend, yeah. The I, first part of it, yeah. I think, so, like, you're right. This is like a movie. Because the way they walk in and Anya's... I mean, I think Emma Caulfield, who just recently unfollowed me on Twitter, is really <laughs> is really good in this scene, and she's really good she's at like fantastic. firing off the lines, um, and she's just like, you know, you don't care about me, blah 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 blah, and then he's like, Xander says something very Xander, where he's like, oh, you really are a real woman, aren't you? Um, but then yeah. they walk in, and when she's like, you don't care about me, you just care about lots of orgasms, 
I, and everyone is, I feel like all of them are perfectly on in that scene. Like Spike sitting up smiling with the fucking cookie in his mouth and Giles being like, ugh. Um, <laughs> I just love everything. All the beats about that scene, I think are so, so Whedon and so perfect. I can't believe I, I skipped over that scene. <laughs> It's so great, but it's also less great when you're watching the episode and all three of your kids walk in the room, and of course, <laughs> they're going to walk in the room right at that line. Right at that line every time, no matter what. The silent episode, your kids walk in at the or one scene. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I actually thought, like, oh, I can watch this while they're around because there's no dialogue. Yeah, that was a mistake. Well, take that, Kirsten. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in the scene talks about what an ugly line it is, too, right? Like, they're all like, yeah. that's the single worst way you could have said it, right? Like, <laughs> like, because then... Giles is like, oh, you have to take Spike with you. And which I really love. Spike, Xander, and Anya all go, what? 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 <laughs> um, and Giles is like, I have a friend. And then Anya again says, like, oh, an orgasm friend? And Giles is like, ugh. <laughs> like, I I love Giles. Giles with Cordelia or Giles with Anya. Or sometimes yeah. even Spike always works for me because he's such a, like, yeah. you know, uptight, straight man. And when they're, like, there to, like, not be that it just it works so well for me I think mm-hmm. Anya was a very good sub for Cordelia I yes. hadn't really thought about that before I mean I definitely miss Cordelia but I, I love Anya and she's she definitely is good at feeling filling that insider outsider role where yes. she's part of the group but she's also the one who feels free to comment on everything yeah and she like doesn't give a shit so like <laughs> yeah oh, I love her so much right, yeah Anya Anya is like I always say Buffy it's weird that like to say your main the main character is your favorite but like Buffy, Willow, and Anya are all tied for my favorite, but, like, for all different reasons. Um, I feel like that's not that weird to say, though. I feel like in a lot of series, the main character tends not to be the favorite because they carry the weight of so much they Mm -hmm. can't be as funny or as charming or as... But I feel like Buffy is one of those rare series where the main character is the best one. Right, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's why I love Veronica Mars as well. I think they're, like, two of the few shows where the main character is one of the most dynamic characters and is it more like yeah. a palette for the audience yeah for sure um so getting back to where i was before before i overstepped <laughs> my own notes um i don't know if you all caught this but so i i do love the like i feel like it's like almost like an underplayed gag when willow and buffy are walking down the street and they see the guy selling the boards they like frown at him and then they walk in with the boards i feel like that's such an underrated like gag Okay, but can we talk about that scene in general? Because everybody has been without their voices for, what, like an hour? Right? And already society is, like, breaking down. There's, like, an apocalypse cult. Nobody can ask me for anything. I'm going back to bed. This is awesome. And, like, school is canceled. Work is canceled. Why are people, like, freaking out in the streets? That's pretty rad. I mean, once people start dying, then, yeah, maybe be concerned. But, like... (laughs) <laughs> the speed with which society broke down was maybe stretching believability a little bit. And that's, I say this, this is one of my favorite episodes, but rewatching it today when there's the businessman in the middle, sitting in yeah. the middle of the street, holding his suitcase, briefcase, crying, and I'm like, whoa, bud, whoa. Like, just go home, right? Yeah, it's not. It reminds me of, like, when Buffy. When Buffy comes back in season six in the very beginning, and like the demons quote unquote run the town for like an hour and trash cans are on fire all over the whole city. And it's like, how did it turn into a hellscape so quickly? 
I mean, but if you lived in Sunnydale, you probably would be like, well, going to die today. Yeah, so that's true. true. Yeah. That would be a rational response if you lived in Sunnydale. That's, you know what? I did not frame it that way. That's a really good point. Because they say, in Sunnydale I think and you woke up and nobody could talk, you'd be like, I'm going to die today. In season one or two, Giles says that there are like 30, there's a lot of cemeteries, but there's also like a lot of churches on in Sunnydale because of the increased demon activity. It makes people super religious. Which I love. Yes. I love the group of like twenty people sitting oh, yeah. there reading Revelations. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would Maybe be me. I'd be... <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually looked up the quote that they're reading because it's the sign is really specific. It's Revelations fifteen one, and mm-hmm. I looked it up, and it's the moment. It's a really weird choice because it's the moment in Revelations when the seven angels show up with the seven plagues. Oh, and it's like. Yeah, it's like yeah. I was. That's why I was counting gentlemen heads because I was yeah. like, it'd be really perfect if there were seven of them. But that also means that you should listen to that person leading that apocalypse call because <laughs> they know what they're talking about. <laughs> that's, true. that's also true. Um, so Buffy and Willow get into that Giles's place, and did you catch the news? I was like, what news program is this? They're blaming the flu shot. Right, yeah, like it's Fox News. propaganda. Yeah, <laughs> all those This is one of those moments almost where I put, like, my reality hat on, and I was like, okay, this is magic, but, like, does it really only account for people within the city limits of Sunnydale? Mm-hmm. What happens if someone was just driving through? <laughs> like, can someone drive from the town over and scream for them? Right, yes. Like, yeah. is, there someone, is there someone across the block from Sunnydale at the city limit who has their voice because they live, like, one block over? And, and like, also, how are they enforcing that quarantine? Because my husband works in city government, and, like, that would be really rough to enact that quickly. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're 100% right. That's why they have the quarantine line in there, because it's not an area of effect. We see them stealing the voices and putting them in the box. Yeah. So all it would take is somebody to drive through. And <laughs> yeah, like literally, if someone w- was just like, oh, I'm going to visit my family in Sunnydale like an hour away on Saturday, <laughs> they came in with a voice, they could like honestly buff you like, can you go over and like scream for me? like <laughs> I'm like, if there were cell phones, this would be fine because Buffy could text someone in the next town and be like, can you come over? Like, we don't have voices. Need you to scream. Love you. Emoji. <laughs> okay, like, wait. I, I want you all to know that my next note, which I was about to say, is that all of this would have been solved. Like, I know they didn't have cell phones. This all would have been solved if Giles or Buffy had emailed Angel and been like, because they say it has to be human voice. Can you bring Cordelia over here to scream real quick? And she would have been so good at screaming. Right? Like, she's a good screamer. Yeah. Or uh, she could just bring a box that says Ebola on it. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, that's a problem with cell phones, man. They ruin everything. Like, yeah. I will tell you as a writer, I can't write contemporary. It was really hard even writing the, Sl- the Slayer novel because I'm like, oh, right, cell phones. There was a, a really good article recently that I read somewhere that was about how, like, all horror movies now either take place in the 60s or in like the future, mm-hmm. like after the world has been ruined and there's no technology because they have to get around cell phones. Yep. So it's either 1960 or like 2250 post-apocalypse, no cell phones. I also can't believe that this episode is, I mean, I've said this almost every time, but Buffy and Riley's romance moves at a glacial pace this season. And I don't know if it's because of what you guys said before, they were waiting for the to say like, oh, look, we took the final that class is done. Um, but, like, it's weird that this is the first time they kiss when we've seen so much of Riley before this. Mm-hmm. That's true. Because um, I feel like Buffy and Angel kissed super fast. Yeah, yeah. 
And they this, had like three conversations. And this yells like, mm. God, this is, a, I mean, it's funny because I think Matthew, you said it in the last episode because it's like late 90s WB. It's like first they make eye contact and then a season later they hold each other. <laughs> right. On WB, like eye contact is first base. <laughs> Which is probably another reason I related to this show so much as a teenager. It's like holding hands was, whoa, slow down. Um, it also gave us time for the Parker thing, though, right? Like, oh, it, yeah. like it does give you some, it gives the, the season some space to have like, actually, which is a kind of a rare thing for like a WB drama to do is to just like have your main character date someone who they completely misread. Mm-hmm. And who is terrible, like yeah. unapologetically terrible, will not be redeemed later. He's just a garbage human. <laughs> and like mm-hmm. have that be part of her character's narrative seems important. Um, but yeah, uh, Riley is very tender. And it's part of his like chivalry thing too, right? Like the, the his repeated use of peculiar and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite scenes of the whole episode and one of the most iconic scenes of the series is the overhead projector scene. Yes. Oh, <laughs> because somehow Giles has been able to commandeer a classroom <laughs> in college. Um, and I also, I think I... And I like the slides so much better. Yeah, and um, I met I someone had a, who had a Buffy Will Patrol Tonight tattoo with the, <laughs> with the drawing. Right, because that's... That, <laughs> That's a tattoo I want to get on my thigh. That's, like, exactly the tattoo I want to get. Um, yeah, I met someone who had it. Okay, and I got to tell you guys, and yes. this is, again, speaking to my um, very religious, sheltered upbringing. <laughs> so lately, when I had been searching for gifts for Buffy, I kept coming across that one where she's pantomiming, staking something. <laughs> I kept thinking, like, oh, gosh, that really looks like something else. Like, I can't <laughs> use that because people might think. And then when I rewatched the episode, like, a year ago, I was like, oh, no, that's the joke. <laughs> I just yeah. never got it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that is so freaking good cute, times. Tristan. Yeah, yeah, good times, what good times. Uh, but, but hey, I got that Willow was gay, so. Yeah. Oh, see, I'm, you're smarter than me on that front. I did not. I thought that the point was that, oh, Willow's friend is kind of, like, sinister because she's like, oh, you're special. And it's like, oh, she's up to something. She was up to something, but I did not know what it was. <laughs> um I kind of like the jack-off thing because it's, like, it's funny, but it's also, like, kind of true. Like, it's a story about, like, oh, these guys, these patriarchal figures called the gentlemen have literally disempowered you by taking your voice. Mm -hmm. And there's something to, like, this sort of masturbatory gesture is self-empowering. Like, like she, she, Buffy's upset. Like, she has that great moment in season two where she's, like, listening to every time I, every time I, Every time I think about you, I touch myself. Like, oh, there's yes. Something. <laughs> yes. There's something, you know, feminist about it. Although she is mm-hmm. jacking off. So, I don't know. Well, so, third wave. About, so, <laughs> so, before we... Do we want to talk about the overhead scene or talk about the gentleman being kind of gay? Which one do we want to talk about first, guys? I mean, let's, you can't go wrong with those choices. Let's I could go jam over. together. I, could, I feel like... See, because, like, they're kind of gay, but for me, the way they're gay is they're kind of fey um, in, like, in, like, all the sense. I think the word, yeah, like, fantastical as well. Yeah, they're, like, they're fairy kingdom characters. Like, the the feyness and the foppishness remind me of um, 
the way that queerness is presented in the Hunger Games, like everyone in District One being very like mm. polite and clappy, clappy, and like very mm. just like the way they move being very foppish. They when I was watching it, I was very much reminded of like District One and Hunger Games, except their mm. outfits are plain as opposed to like high femme. That's true. Um, but they're but yeah, no, I know I definitely like always have felt like the gentlemen were a little a little queer. <laughs> I love the scene of them walking down the hall in the dorms and like this one. No. This one, <laughs> oh my god! No. Oh my god! It's oh so yeah! It's like it's. I mean, they're kind of sweet. Like I know <laughs> they really people's hearts out, but they're so. They seem polite. to have like a sense of decorum. Yeah. <laughs> and like and a, like an orderliness. Yeah, they're like really respectful of each other. Like, do you want to do it? No, you go ahead. And like, mm-hmm. you know, they're good to each other. Yeah, it's like a it's like a queerness as decadence, right? Like. Oh yeah. Uh, like and they like kind of a, seem like when they're not ripping out hearts that they have like a book club and they're like yes. discussing that Bovary yeah. or something. Right. <laughs> it's very Frasier, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like so I love the like them like lightly clap. They're so lightly clapping, and the like main gentleman Doug Jones. I put in my notes. He's like, no, please stop. Don't applaud. Don't applaud. Putting out his like <laughs> long creepy fingers. Um, but also, I wanted to make note. So I already said that like. Doug Jones said in the, like, TV Guide Oral History that him and Camden Toy are the only ones with their real mouths. So they had the dentures in their mouths, but that required him and Camden Toy to put on a huge overdone smile all day for every take. And the quote is, you know when you're at a party and you're going, ha, 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 and all of a sudden your face starts hurting? Think of that, but for 12 hours at a time, which I feel like would be miserable, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is why, like, no, no, like, uh, film versions of the Joker ever actually do that, right? Like, Jack Nicholson wears an appliance. Um, Heath Ledger has to wear the like scar makeup, right? Like, no one, no one puts an actor through that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I never even thought about that, but you're right. That's that would make sense because in a movie, if you're doing that every day for what, like, a month or two or how many months, I don't know. You'd age like an old handbag. That's why the best Joker is Mark Hamill because he's always an animated Joker. Yeah. (laughs) Um, They kind of, now that I think about it, they kind of die from impoliteness too. Like Buffy has the rudeness to scream and it's just like, (laughs) oh dear. And they just like Mm -hmm. explode. (laughs) Right. They're kind of like a, can you keep that racket down? You little, (laughs) these like old gay white gentrifiers who are like, they're so noisy. They move into town, they take everyone's voices. Probably drive up the real estate prices too. By the way, I love their loft, that like clock. I would totally live in that clock tower. Oh my gosh, that they literally looked like they went on an episode of House Hunters and found the clock tower. And they were like, oh my God, this is perfect. Um, I rip out hearts for a living. My budget's $1.1 million. Um, it also speaks to the like um, the silent film aesthetic of the episode, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. um, it has that kind of expressionist, like Fritz Lang, Murnau kind of vibe. Like even when Giles plays that um, dance macabre theme during his like uh, <laughs> during his slideshow, like it's very like this episode feels like it was somehow made in 1923. You know? <laughs> so oh, I totally forgot about that detail. How great is it that Giles puts on music for his slideshow? Right. <laughs> Guys, not only do I love this scene, but I think this overhead projection auditorium scene is my favorite scene in all of Buffy. Wow. Yep. 
Well, it has, it, I mean, I actually, if you really look at why I think you like it and why it appeals to people who are Buffy fans is that it kind of has everything that you need in the Buffy scene, except an argument, because I do love a good Buffy <laughs> argument scene yeah. where everyone's <laughs> ganging up on Buffy, but <laughs> it, it really is like them all together in one room, like the entire gang is there. Yeah. They're all trying to solve this problem and it has like a fuck ton of humor Mm-hmm. And there's Anya's like there eating classic. her popcorn. Oh my god, I love it. <laughs> and she's like, "Oh yeah, this is great." And- right. So like, and that popcorn is such a visual cue. Like, isn't Anya the one who always has the popcorn? Who's like <laughs> just like waiting to see how things pan out and like yeah. is observing the human, the humanity of everyone there, and like watching them break down and stuff like that. And yeah. then progressively bloodier illustrations. Like I love picturing Giles taking the time to find a red marker and like detailing all the blood and then adding more on the next slide. And it also comes back, right? Well, it also feels like one of the last times that Giles is at the front of the stage, like telling everyone how it's going to be. That's true. Yeah. Um, Anthony, did you not- say did you say it comes back? Because yeah, in season seven, he makes the drawings for Chow An. That's right, and he horrifies her because he uses yes. too much blood. I remember that, yeah. Yes. Um, and so in TV Guide's oral history, Anthony Stewart Head actually had a really good quote. Um, he said, Joss, try, Joss tried it before where he basically said, okay, you're all in the library, I'm going to give you the chance to improvise because I'm not going to script this moment. And we were all useless, totally useless, to the point where we were in the auditorium scene and I'm doing a slideshow and this was all scripted because he said, I was thinking of you improvising this and you were so useless before that I've actually got to script (laughs) the questions and basically I've got to write out every movement in this scene because none of you can improvise. There really is something really formalist about the scene too. Like one of the pleasures of it is that it's taken the like standard expositional scenes um, and just, like, reduced it to, like, almost like a children's storybook, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. what those slides are. It's just, like, these very, like, elemental drawings. It's what makes the gentleman so compelling is, like, we get so little data about them that it feels... This is why they feel like fairy tale characters. Mm-hmm. It's, like, they come to a town, they take the voices. It doesn't explain the mechanism whereby they... Like, that weird little Hellraiser box. It doesn't really explain how it works because we understand it implicitly because it's just, like, so stripped down, like all the way to the studs. Like, here's the here's the exposition, here's, like, a great little silent moment joke, and, like, the, the it sort of performs the episode's thesis. Like, you don't need to hear them talk to get what this scene's about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I... I can't say enough how much I love this scene. <laughs> um, I totally, like, Matthew and I, before we both moved out of New York, we were going to get, like, a Buffy tattoo. Not, like, the same one, but that was a tattoo I was going to get was... One of his drawings, um, I also wanted to point out that I love that when they're all upset about all the blood, they cut to Anya and she's just shaking her head like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh-huh. Eat more popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, one of you said it earlier, Cameron, for you, Kirsten, or Anthony, that like Anya almost is the audience and that's what almost makes his work even more that she's fucking eating popcorn and just shaking her head like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so then we get like, which this is where I have in my notes that Tara, especially in this scene, I, because I didn't watch this scene. I mean, I've, I've told my like origin story. Like I only got back into Buffy after season three because I knew Willow ended up being gay and I was like a show with a gay character. So Mm. I don't, 
I don't really know the experience of watching this episode without knowing Tara survives, but it, oh, it really, especially in that scene, it feels like, oh, this is where she's going to die. This is where yeah, the new well, friend... Yeah, she's tripping. And, yeah, yeah. Like, the new friend Willow just met is going to die, and it's going to be kind of sad for one episode, and then we get over it. Like, mm-hmm. that's what right. the whole chase scene feels like. That Like, Tara even walking out into the, like, campus that's all dark feels like, oh, she's walking out to die, because it's... This movie, this this movie, this episode is very horror, like uses horror tropes and stuff like that. So it feels like that. Yeah, I also really like the detail that um, she's banging on the doors and we see interiors where we see people registering the banging and yes. not coming to the door. Like the Joyce in that episode where she becomes the like uh, Mothers Against the Occult <laughs> episode. Yeah. She talks about how Sunnydale silences this town's disease. Mm-hmm. And, like, here you see it at its, like, most basic, right? Like, they know someone's in trouble and they don't do anything. And, like, having that be, especially to have that be the introduction to a queer character here um, feels really significant to me. That, like, we watch her bang on all these doors and ask for help and it's only Willow that answers. I think that that's... Um, Wait, isn't doesn't this gentleman answer the door at one point too? Yeah, like, it's a really good thing right. where you see Willow get up and go to her door, and then a door opens and it's a gentleman. Yes. Yeah, like so I love that. I just love that whole sequence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and God bless uh, Amber Benson because she's just like falling over everything, yeah. and like yeah. you can feel yeah. the terror they of it. Have her. They have her like fucking like Terry Hatcher in the first season of Sesame Housewives, like falling over everything. <laughs> Like really ridiculous, and she's wearing um, that long although, skirt, and it's like, oh god, yeah, she's gonna. Defense, she's wearing like a floor-length skirt, and you cannot run in those things. They're comfy. She's wearing like floor-length skirt, but also like Spice Girls era like platform shoes. It feels mm-hmm. like like these really chunky shoes that are not good for running. Mm-hmm. Um, you would think no one in Sunnydale would wear anything but tennis shoes ever. <laughs> yeah. What is Buffy about? It's about old dudes who insist you be polite. And you disobey them, and that's how you fight back, right? Then that's like, that's why this is such a good 50 minute film version that tells you really everything you need to know about Buffy as a universe. Because, like, Mm -hmm. the gentlemen, we know almost nothing about them. We don't need to know anything. They're like the mayor. It's like their motives don't matter. We don't know what they're doing with the hearts. In fact, the story fights us on it because it's like, if there were seven hearts and seven seven gentlemen, we'd be like, okay, well, I can kind of guess, but it's like, we have no idea. (laughs) And it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. They're like malefic. And Buffy just needs to scream, and she'll... That's why I kind of like the Riley B, where he's like a good ally who breaks the box for her and gives her a voice, like he gives her a platform, you know? Okay, I guess I can give him that. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing his best. He's trying. It almost feels like the action... The action he is besides the point. It almost feels like the episode doesn't need the action. Um... Like, I feel like the gentleman chasing Tara and, like, them all being scared and, like, I don't know. For me, it almost feels like the, after the auditorium scene, the episode kind of, like, shifts to more, like, normal Buffy. Yeah, well, you know what, too? There's a a moment, I'm reminded of an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race (laughs) where um, Alaska dressed in boy drag and Michelle Visage tells her... I paid my $5, I want to see Alaska, and she's telling her how to do boy drag, and I feel like a fight scene is like a requisite part of a Buffy episode, and that they Mm -hmm. have to have one. So I think that they have to have one, but also I think that this fight scene is is very well choreographed because the really it's a physical, it's an I Love Lucy episode where (laughs) 
they're next to each other and they don't know that it's them for a while until that mm-hmm. moment right before the commercial cut. And it's very much like I Love Lucy, like her mimicking someone in the mirror or like just the physical comedy <laughs> of that as well. There's a level of dramatic irony that we're in that like the characters are not. And so we feel like we know something that they don't. And right. so there's actually like a lot of choreography that goes into like what this fight scene is about that I think is really interesting. And it elevates it from a normal like kill Balthazar fight scene. Yeah, it's also doing some character work, right? Like it contains the shot of Buffy swinging on the rope to kick that one yeah. dude in the straight jet. And it, it has the, the shot of Riley electrocuting that one guy. Like we're learning how they fight and how they fight differently. Mm-hmm. I think actually one of my favorite parts of the episode and one of its best comedic beats, and it's also doing a lot of character work, is when Riley goes to smash something, he smashes the wrong thing, and Bucky looks so annoyed with him, (laughs) and she has to physically mimic what a box is in order to get across to him. She's like, oh my god, you fucking idiot, like, why would you smash a crystal? Like what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, I just, I feel like they're acting at that silent moment in the choreography is so 100% perfect. I also really love it comes just before that when they're down on the lower level fighting the straitjacket guys and Riley is like cornered. He's got several on him and Buffy sees the one going upstairs and she knows something's important upstairs and she looks back at Riley and then she leaves him. And she goes yeah. upstairs to do what needs to be done. Well, she um, always, I mean, even in season seven, when they're fighting um, Nathan Fillion, Caleb, like she says, the bad guys always go where the power is. And so you're absolutely right. Like she kind of follows the the powerful guy to where that talisman is. You could say he speaks to her esteem of him. Like she's seen him fight. She knows he can handle it. But also like she's going to get stuff done. She knows there's only one way yeah. to finish it. So. That's my girl. Wow. Is that hard? Like, as you're working, like, you're developing new characters and you're watching, like, this episode lands in a weird place because we're still getting to know Riley in a weird way because we've only known, we've only known what he his deal really is for two episodes now, like, mm-hmm. as much as he's been around. And Tara's brand new. Like, is it hard to figure out how much you can trust an audience to like a character, to trust a character to be an idiot, to trust a character to mess up? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, and I think that, I think that television, you know, you you have cheats in the way that, like, the way that the characters look. Like, Riley looks like a dude you could trust. Right, yeah. Super boring. Um, <laughs> and, Captain like, America thing, you know, yeah. the, there, is that, there is that shorthand, and there, there's the shorthand of music, too. Um, if I could set a soundtrack to my books and you would have to hear certain musical cues at certain <laughs> points, like, I would do it in a heartbeat. Um and actually, my friends who write horror, that's one of the hardest things for them because you can't show the thing off screen that the main character can't see, but you can see. And you can't yeah. have the musical cues and all of those things. You have to build everything for them. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely hard. And, like, that's one thing that I feel like this show does really well is those kind of shorthand cues for this is who this character is. And, yes, it's going to build and change and progress. But, like, they establish their characters really well from the get-go, I feel like. Um, so... I wanted to point out that even... So then we get Tara and Willow. They grab hands. Warms my heart. Um, Mm -hmm. The first time I went through this series with my straight best friend slash roommate, Kevin, he immediately said to me, and it's so weird to think that he had a best friend who loved Buffy and he didn't know that Willow eventually comes out as a lesbian. And he goes, yo, I hope they date. And I was just like... (laughs) What? How did you not know? But also, I was impressed that a straight guy even picked up that would be like, oh my god. Yeah. You were watching live. You weren't watching live, right? You, you no, learned. it was like 
And this was like literally like three years ago. See, I feel like my problem with this as a scene when I was a kid is like, I literally was what, I would have been 16. And even if I picked up on it, it didn't seem possible, right? Like those mm -hmm. kinds of characters didn't exist. So like, mm -hmm. right. if I saw it, I was imagining it, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I mean, like I said, I didn't watch because I had... I had given up after season three when I did, they didn't air the finale and then I didn't get back on board till I knew Willow was gay. And then I was mm -hmm. like, Ooh, let me give that show a shot again. They have a queer character that never happens. And it like, so for me, it's impossible to imagine Tara without connecting her to like knowing she dates. Willow. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a weird way you have to recover. Like, okay, I don't know if she's a lesbian, but you also have to recover. Okay. As a culture, yeah. lesbians are not a thing in pop culture, you know? Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's not a long-term thing you can have. And, like, that's... that, Like, this season kind of invents a lot of things we're already tired of. Like, narratives were like, oh, they can't even do that anymore. Like, and yet it's it hadn't been done. Because so. yeah. they don't even kiss on screen till season five, right? Yep. No, until the body. Not the body. Yeah, until the body. They have they have orgasm magic instead. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which again, did not pick up on my first time around. Uh, well, it's funny. So I'm at, like, at oh, my, wow, that's what's happening in this scene. Cool. At my office the other day, I was giving people, I was showing people like the scenes from Who Are You in This Year's Girl where they have the orgasm magic. And I was like, this is how Joss had to get around showing lesbian sex. And even, like, when I was telling my friend who is a gay man, like, I was like, this is sex. Like, he was like, I still don't get it. Like, are they just, like, what are they doing? Like, it's like, no, like, they're having sex, but through magic. And he's like, mm, I don't know. Like, what is wrong with you? They are sweaty and their backs are arched. <laughs> Come to think of it, I've never thought about the fact that the show ends up getting to a place where magic functions as an addictive property because it establishes magic is pleasurable to perform right mm -hmm. like yeah. that that mm -hmm. is actually a step that isn't necessarily obvious in genre fiction like it's not like i also think that the show actually never gets its story straight on what magic is like i'll tell you as somebody writing in the buffy world their uh demonology and their magic systems are never set it's never a closed system that's explained how it works which makes things really really hard um okay. like when i write my own books you set up how magic works. It has its rules. It has what it can and can't do. And it always has to cost the person more than the benefit of using it, right? Mm -hmm. um, because right. otherwise, why wouldn't everybody do it all the time? Um, and so it's been really hard working in the Buffy universe because they have no set demonology. It's like sometimes they come from other dimensions. Sometimes they've been here. Sometimes they were this. <laughs> which right. works for like Monster of the Week. But when you're trying to write like a contained narrative, it's mm -hmm. like I kept being like, oh, am I messing this up? No, there's nothing to mess up. So we get the fight. We Buffy s screams that really poorly dubbed scream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I said in a prior episode, I can't remember. I even tried Googling it before we recorded this. There was some kind of show that I remember watching where it was like, these people are telling, one of them is telling a lie. And one of the women like on the panel was like, oh, I do, I do scream voiceovers for like TV actresses. I did a scream voiceover for Buffy in the episode Hush. And I remember them showing that scene and that woman wasn't one of the people lying. Like the, whoever the person that had to figure it oh. out was. And 
I wish I could figure out. I couldn't tell you anything else about the show. I just remember that. Um, how do you how do you apply for that job? I want to people for a living. Apparently, she like screamed professionally. Um, wow. And it's really it wasn't a good scream. It's really obviously not Sarah Michelle Gellar, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> which is weird because I feel like I don't. I mean, I guess maybe not like a scream like that, but she's definitely screamed. I mean, she mm-hmm. screams and screams. So, so then we get a little wrap up of Willow and Tara. Anthony already said, she says, no, you are special. Um, Aw, sweetheart, who I thought was bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But she thinks she's a bad guy, too, right? So there's, like, a neat, like, there's, like, a neat narrative. Like, even the story she tells of being, like, she's been doing magic or, I forget exactly how she phrases it, but, like. Well, her mom was a a witch. Right, Mm -hmm. but, but she doesn't. Like, she says, like, my whole life. Like, there's a weird... Like, she thinks there's something demonic about herself, which, like, cues nicely with the, the, the queer narrative here. But, yeah, I mean, there is, like, we're supposed to be like, oh, something's up with her. So I don't feel like mm-hmm. I'm totally off base. <laughs> no, yeah, no, 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 you're totally on base. up a spell of Willow's that yeah. you see her do, and it's like, why would she do that? But it's because she thinks she's part human. That's, right. I feel like yeah. that is one of the weirder side plots on the show. Right? Yeah. I mean, I I mean, Kirsten, you've made several allusions to being raised religiously. Like, Tara's experience feels close to, like, I wish I had Willow's experience where it's like you come out to your mom and she doesn't care, but Tara's feels more real to me. Yeah, for sure. Well, and that's, I mean, in a lot of religious communities, that's what you're taught. Like, it's it's the devil. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a sinful thing that shouldn't be part of you. And so, like, yeah, that definitely, I mean, it was, whether or not it was successfully part of the narrative, like I understand why they did it. And I think it does function well as like metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always felt like it was like just a metaphor. Like, yeah, like you guys are saying, like it was the Buffy version of a religious upbringing where you're told that you're like a dirty girl and it's from the devil and stuff. And even with like the bringing the whole family along and it's like an extended family thing. That's very like religious. Could you imagine if Amy Adams like yelled at you once in your life? I would never recover. <laughs> I would never recover. I'd be like, well, I also would have a stammer. I think. <laughs> um, so I and I also love the last line, which is of course on purpose, is Buffy saying, "I guess we need to talk." Um, mm-hmm. That it almost is like as on the nose as Professor Walsh explaining the whole episode to you in the very beginning. Um, but for me. It's on the nose in a good way. Like, it's not on the nose in a bad way. Um, yeah. And I thought this was actually rather interesting. In the Entertainment Weekly reunion, Michelle Trachtenberg said, as a fan of the show, you guys were perfect in this episode. That's when I truly fell in love with the show. I thought that was a good... Oh, so late. Right? Yeah. But I, I knew that she was a fan of the show before she was hired. Um, mm-hmm. What would Dawn be doing in this episode? Yes, that's <laughs> what I was going to lead into. <laughs> well, oh, wait, sorry, I, I stepped on I want to go back to the line. Okay, the line, yes. Because I do want to point out that Riley's the one who says that line. Oh, so, I see. Um, oh. It's not Buffy, it's Riley. <laughs> and he says we have to talk. And I think that there, it's really interesting because I feel like there's two ways to read that line. In the re- it's like there's a reading of like, obviously like oh now we have to talk about it that's like the one level but i think the other level is like saying like i guess we have to talk and he's now saying that like talking is the is the level of communication they have now even though like the most revelatory thing they did involved no talking oh yes and it feels 
And it, it's almost like a letdown. It's like we have to talk about it when the best thing we did was like, show me yours and I'll show you mine. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's the level of like, that's the doubleness of it in that, like, I think Joss is actually saying like the, the sometimes words aren't enough. Like they couldn't mm -hmm. have said this thing to each other this whole time. And the gentleman coming along and doing this is actually what progressed their relationship to the next level. <laughs> they look like psychiatrists. So I mean... <laughs> Oh yeah. I guess we have to talk or whatever it is is like it's there's something resigned about that, right? Like god, now right. we have to do the paperwork of it, right? You know. <laughs> yeah. Even though they already it's like any talking they do is just going to be going over what they already know. Like they've yes. already kind of come out to each other as knowing about the demon world. Which is a nice parallel to the Terra Willow thing too, right? Like Mm -hmm. Something is going on that they don't need to talk about yet, that talking about would still be dangerous and cheapening, right? Okay, now we can talk about what um, <laughs> Thank you for ruining my ending, Matthew. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so, Anthony, what do you think Dawn would be doing? I think that Dawn is in her room, reading Harry <laughs> Potter... And neither she nor Joyce know that they lost their voices at any point. <laughs> Kirsten? Okay, so I think there would be a scene where Buffy runs home to check on Joyce and Dawn, and Dawn would come down wearing all of Buffy's clothes because Buffy couldn't yell at her for it. <laughs> oh, nice. That's good, that's good. Yeah. Uh, Matthew? I think that Dawn, that Buffy, that Dawn would find a way... I think that Dawn would be the one who would scream at the end and she'd scream, get out, get out to the gentleman. Damn it, Matthew, you stole my answer. <laughs> I, that was literally my answer, that she somehow would have ended up at the end and screamed. <laughs> like, yeah, like the, 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 it ends with them in her room and she's like, get out, get out, get out, and their heads all explode. <laughs> I, I thought that somehow she would end up there and maybe like she would have her voice like maybe her and Joyce were coming back from vacation and they drove into town in the middle of this and so they have their voices so Dawn just goes there and screams um but it would make that sense. would be a very that would be a very Wadonian ending because right? he often has these endings where the characters don't actually have to do work in order to solve the problem <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. and like it was all about the friends we made along the way <laughs> um okay so Kirsten favorite outfit uh, okay, so Anya in her first scene is wearing a sweater with no back. <laughs> so it's a long sleeve sweater <laughs> with just like two strings tying it together in the back, which, okay, if it's cold enough to wear a sweater, you what? want a back. <laughs> but if it's warm enough to have no back, why are you wearing a sweater? Anyway, yeah, I baffling, baffling choice <laughs> that I quite dig. Matthew? We're talking about favorite outfit, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um... I, mm, you know, I didn't, there wasn't as much, you know what, I'm going to say Tara's sk skirt. Okay. Tara's mm. long running skirt. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Anthony? Uh, okay, well, I have, I have a few. I like, I like legitimately like Xander's first look. Like, it's a very classic, it's got like a fleeciness to oh, it. The, I it's like. red, right? Yeah, I want to touch it, which I like. Like that's I like tactile I think he looks, garments. He looks good in the bold colors. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like that one. Um, I like I like Tara. I like just generally. One of the things we didn't really talk about is how Tara isn't. One of the reasons she feels like she's in danger is she doesn't look like she's come out of central casting. Like she's mm -hmm. she's got hips. She's um, her hair isn't like some perfect like Aniston haircut. 
And I just kind of like that she looks, she really does look like she dressed herself. And mm-hmm. I like that. Um, but my favorite outfit has to be those beautiful suits that the gentlemen are wearing, <laughs> yeah. complete with the tie pins. <laughs> I would love one of those. Um, oh, wait. Also, I wait. I want to put in a late, a late last minute vo- vote for like Olivia's like, I'm st- I'm I'm having sex in my boyfriend's sweater. Oh. Sweater. Oh, yeah. Because we also has like an all all time makeup game for Buffy is Olivia's look. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. honestly, Olivia's makeup is like on point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I really do wish we could have gotten more of her, but sadly, this yeah, is, she was great. This is the last episode she's in where it isn't a dream. I but... sort of love characters who are like, you know what? This is too dangerous. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that for this world, that does make sense. You'd be like. Um, I saw a monster outside your window. I do not want to come back here. (laughs) She's like, no D is worth this (laughs) amount of work. Like, I come over here. I lose my voice. (laughs) I see this scary-ass man in the window. I know you throw it down, Giles, but, like, honestly, this is a lot. You come to me next time. (laughs) My favorite outfit is Buffy's two-tone pink top with the black jacket and the black pants. Oh, yeah. All right, everyone. Matthew, your favorite scene? The uh, overhead projector scene. All right. Kirsten? Yeah, overhead projector scene, but also I just can't get over that businessman sitting in the middle of the road crying, having his briefcase. <laughs> Anthony? Um, I am a big anti-vaxxer, so I really like... <laughs> <laughs> I really like the plug for my community. No. Uh, uh, I don't, it's such a perfect... Like, there's, It's such a beautiful little puzzle box of an episode that there's nothing I really want to lift out... Um, but I do love, I do love, like, I love me a girl screams and the evil men all die. Like, I really like, and it's also a beautiful effect, right? Like those, that beautiful spray of green as their heads explode. <laughs> so I'm going to say the head popping scene. All right. All right. There's a better death scene than monsters usually get in yes. Buffy. Like, oh, totally. That's a high quality one. My favorite scene is auditorium scene as well. I just, it's my, if you told, if you said, Ian, what's your favorite scene from your favorite thing? I would say the auditorium scene from Hush and Buffy. All right, everyone grades i'm gonna start with me i give it an a plus plus because i give it extra credit for being so fucking wonderful <laughs> matthew well Uh-oh. um i don't believe in pluses i know so you can. Okay. <laughs> all right uh kirsten yeah definitely an a anthony oh yeah uh a i do believe in pluses um i'm i have a reputation as an easy grader so <laughs> but a like this is not even like one of the best episodes of buffy but easily like honestly like one of the best episodes television has ever produced mm-hmm. of anything Ooh. like mm-hmm. it's like a like one of the top 10 television television moments because it's it's thinking so much about the limits of television as even a form it's like, it catches, like we keep talking about the cell phone thing, but it's even thinking about like television turning into something beyond radio with talking heads, which is what right. it was for so much of the 90s. Like it's thinking about like, how do you tell a visual story that the audience has to be looking at to get? So it's like A plus, 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 plus. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this episode um, and listening to me have a thousand fucking notes. Um <laughs> Matthew, are you proud of me for being the one to keep us on track this time? Normally, Matthew's the one that does that. I don't, I mean, if you want to, if that's how you want to read your performance today, I won't prefer <laughs> that. Okay. He doesn't believe in pluses. <laughs> um, thank you guys for being on, and thank you guys for listening. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are SlayerFestX98, 
And if you want to follow Matthew on Twitter, he's Matthew, at Matthew Rodriguez, one T, a G, and a Z. If you want to follow Ian, you can follow him at Ian X Carlos. And how about uh, Anthony? You go next. Uh, I am Mia Koopa on Twitter, M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A, as in the little thingies that Super Mario jumps on. And cheers. And I'm going to plug Anthony. His Twitter feed is amazing. And also his his actual writing is phenomenal. And if you Aww. haven't read it, you need to. Um, and then my Twitter, which is not phenomenal, um, <laughs> it is at uh, uh, Kirsten White. And that's it. It's just spelled weird. Kirsten, that's if, how my name is. <laughs> Kirsten, can I ask, if someone was going to start with one of your books, which one should they pick up first? Um... It's a really hard question because it would depend on what you like because I'm a huge genre jumper. Um, I would definitely say my most recent series, it's historical fiction, so I don't know if that floats your boat, but it's a gender-swapped retelling of Vlad the Impaler. Oh. um, Yeah, so I have a a vampire thing. There's no vampires, but it's a historical inspiration for Dracula. That's definitely my biggest thing. Um, What's it called? It's called And I Darken. Yeah, thanks for making me tell you my title, <laughs> which I would not have. Um, I'm super good at self-promo. And um, I yeah, Darken. And I Darken. Um, it's a trilogy. The last book comes out in July, so you won't have to wait too long. Um, but yeah, it definitely follows a lot of these themes of, like, violence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you love Buffy, though, um, my first series, the first book is called Paranormalcy, and uh, it's basically Buffy fan fiction. I did not do it deliberately, but like (laughs) it's a little blonde girl who fights supernatural creatures. And also again, I didn't do it deliberately, but afterward a friend of mine who was a Buffy fan along with me was like, so her organization is just like the initiative. And I was like, Oh shoot. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's definitely, it's definitely a Buffy read alike, which is probably why I got the Slayer job. Um, Mm, But again, it's my first series. So I, I think I'm a better writer now, but it's fun. So Oh, all right. Well, thanks, guys. And thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thank you for being on. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.